Essentials of Biblical Gospel. Number seven in the Judges series. This is an exposition of Judges chapter four. This message by Pastor Rod Harris was delivered at Trinity Baptist Church on Sunday morning, May the 30th, 2021. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this privilege and opportunity of worship. And Lord, I pray that as we gather around your word that you would open it to us. That we might be nourished and fed and encouraged and strengthened to be the people that you've called us to be and to live the life that you've called us to live. Father, as you speak, may we hear, may we heed the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's the kind of thing that every kid dreams of. That opportunity to come to bat in the bottom of the ninth. Bases loaded, everything's dependent upon you. That's the kind of circumstance it was for him. It's a critical moment in the life of the nation. He has the opportunity to step in at this most critical time and lead the charge bringing a surprising, overwhelming victory against a superior foe. Of course, the catch is, in doing that, he's going to play second fiddle to a woman. And the decisive blow is going to be delivered by yet another woman. And he's going to show up a day late and a dollar short. It's another of the twisting, turning, strange tales in the book of Judges. We're in that time, and some have called the dark ages of Israel. Israel as a nation is taking its first struggling steps. After 400 years of bondage, they were finally released. And then they took a little detour and they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. And now they're coming to take possession of the land. Joshua led the army and they broke the back of Canaanite domination. But now it's time to settle the land. Now it's time to go city by city, area by area, and take control and settle in and make it theirs. It's that time in which there was no king in Israel. And every man did what was right in his own eyes. And during that time, there was a pattern that kept being repeated over and over again. The people would fall into apostasy. They would turn away from God and turn to the surrounding gods around them. As a result of that, God would bring oppression through a, a king or a group of people and they would be oppressed for a period of time, and finally they would cry out to God in their pain, begging God to do something about it, God would, in grace and mercy, raise up a judge, a deliverer, a savior, who would bring them out of that, establish a time of peace, only for all that to be repeated again. This cycle, or rather the spiral, was a downward spiral, moving further and further away from God, moving deeper and deeper into depravity. Yet God keeps showing mercy and grace. Through it all, we keep asking ourselves, is it that they can't learn or they won't learn? And we also keep wondering, why is it God keeps bailing them out? Why is God so merciful? Why is God so gracious? Why does he keep raising up these judges and delivering them? At its essence, the book of Judges is about sin, judgment, and salvation. 
In other words, it's a gospel story. Our text this morning is found in Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4, we're going to look at the entire chapter. It's important as we work through Judges, but in particular in the text we're going to be looking at today, that we keep our focus on the point, on the main point of the book of Judges. It's, it's easy because there are things that happen that draw our attention. There are things that happen that create all kinds of questions. We're wondering, why did that happen? And why did God allow this? Or why did God allow that? And if we're not careful, our attention is drawn away. And we lose sight of the grand message, the meta-narrative running through it all of God's grace and mercy to his people, and we get caught up in all kinds of questions. It's not that those questions don't matter. It's not that the ethical issues raised aren't important and we're just going to ignore them, but we need to recognize that's not the point of the writer. The biblical writer is telling a story. He's telling a story of God's grace toward his people. He's telling us about God's love, his mercy, and his kindness toward his own. And by the way, just because something is recorded in Scripture as something that happened does not mean it happened with God's approval. It doesn't mean that it is endorsed by God. I'm thinking particularly in this chapter about J.L. and her decisions, her deception. Her murdering of an high-ranking official within the government. Yes, that raises questions, but keep your eye on the main point of the story. God's grace, God's mercy, and God's kindness to his people. We're not told that God told J.L. to do this particular thing. We're not told that she was the choice of God to deliver his people. We're simply told this is what happened. And God in His providence, God in His sovereignty, was able to use the choices, the decision of this woman, and work it for His glory. It's, in other words, it's an outworking of what we read in Romans 8 and 28, that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Not saying that everything that happens is good, not saying that everything that goes on is right, but we are saying that God providentially uses all things to accomplish His will and His purpose. We also recognize that this is a testimony, a witness to the sovereignty of God because it fulfills a prophecy given earlier. The point of the story is God's saving of His people yet again. Look with me, Judges chapter 4 beginning at verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Haggaiim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lipidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, son of Abinom, from Kadesh Nephtali, 
and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Nephtali and of the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I'll go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. She said to him, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak called out Zebulun and Nephtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as Zenanim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all of his men who were with him from Harish Haganim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harishoth Higion. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazar, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent. And she covered him with a rug. He said to her, Please, give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg, and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Just another day in the life of the judges. Now, 
I, I'm going I'm, I'm to confess up front, there are probably not a, there's probably not a single refrigerator magnet verse in this chapter. <laughs> but there are some really important things we need to know. There are some important affirmations about the gospel in this text. In fact, the surprising, suspenseful story of Barak's judgment affirms the essentials of the biblical gospel. The essential truths of the gospel are reflected in this text. And I want to point them out to you. Three things as we work our way through. First of all, the biblical record consistently affirms man's insatiable appetite for sin and his bent toward rebellion against God. That's in the first three verses. Man has an insatiable appetite for sin. It is the natural bent of man to be in rebellion against God. And you can hear the frustration and the disappointment of the biblical narrator in the opening verse. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They've returned to their old ways. They've, they've gone back to the same old thing yet again. And did you catch the qualifier? When Ehud died, so after there's been this time of peace, as long as there was this ruler in place, and as long as he was exercising some kind of restraint, the people basically did the right thing. But when he died, they immediately went back to their old ways. As long as there was some restraint, some, they, they kind of behaved. As long as there was some external pressure to conform to godliness, they towed the line. But once that was removed back to their idolatrous ways. Now it's not stated explicitly, but it is, that's what's meant by, and again, they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. The word again points back to, it's just like before. This, this is the same problem that we saw before. So it was idolatry. It was going after, whoring after these other gods. Abandoning the God of the covenant Abandoning Yahweh, the God that heard their cries down in Egypt and brought them out, the God who's loved them and cared for them through 40 years of wilderness wandering, the God who has given them victory in battle after battle, this God who has raised up saviors for them, they turned from Him and went after the gods of the surrounding peoples. They again did what was evil in the eyes of God. Same song, Third verse. And soon it's going to be fourth verse, fifth verse, sixth verse, and on and on it will go. Returning again and again to their own old ways. Returning again and again to their sin. Sin is monotonous. It's the same thing over and over again. Sin's boring. There's nothing new under the sun. Rebellion is rebellion. Perversion is perversion. And corruption is corruption. The one constant in the story of the judges is the persistence of Israel in their sin. Time and time again, they turn back to their old ways. Time and time again, they go whoring after other gods. They turn from the true and living God, giving themselves to that which is not God at all. 
In the whole of Scripture, we hear the story again and again that man is unholy, unrighteous, and deserving of the wrath of God. It's not a popular message, but it's the message we need to hear because it is the truth. The heart of man is deceitful above all things. The heart heart of man is deceitfully wicked. The thought and intent of his mind and heart is only evil all the time. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the biblical assessment. This is who we are. This is what we are. Because in Adam we all died. Because in Adam we are all sinners. We choose to sin because that is who we are. We commit sin because that is what we are. We are sinners. James put it this way. We are lured away and enticed by our own evil lust and desires. So that means I can't blame anyone. I can't say the devil made me do it. I can't say she made me do it. I can't say he made me do it. I sin because I want to sin. I sin because I enjoy sin. Because it brings me pleasure. Because it gives me fulfillment. Because it does what I want it to do for me. The problem is, it's not a lasting joy. It's not a lasting fulfillment. It's only momentary. And it makes me go deeper and deeper because I have to have more and more in order to get what little satisfaction I can. But left to ourselves, this is who we are. This is what we are at the core of our being. When we talk about total depravity or, rab- or, or radical depravity, we're saying it goes to the core of our being. It goes to the essence of who we are. That is why we cannot save ourselves. It's why we can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and we can't just decide, well, I'm going to do better. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to move in another direction. I'm going to live righteously from this day forward. We don't have it in us because of who and what we are. We are fallen sons and daughters of Adam. We are sinners. Because Israel again did evil in the eyes of the Lord, the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. There was a Jabin who reigned in Hazar during the days of Joshua. And Joshua and his army defeated that king and and burned the city. And now a hundred years later, apparently the city's been rebuilt. There's another king, Jabin, probably because the name Jabin is not a proper name, but it's a royal title, like Pharaoh in Egypt. And Hazar was an important city, a powerful city, 10 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Would have made Jabin the most powerful ruler in the whole of northern Canaan. He controlled the Jezreel Valley. And his enforcer was a man named Sisera, a commander of his army. That's a foreign name. Most likely he was a mercenary with a great army, a powerful army that made him an important figure, but it also made him a force to be reckoned with. We're told he had a sizable army. He had 900 chariots of iron. In other words, he had the latest weaponry of his day. He was the best outfitted army there was in that part of the world. And we're told that he, Sisera, not Jabin, but Sisera, this 
commander, this general of the army, cruelly oppressed the people of Israel for 20 years. One scholar translates it this way. He vehemently tormented Israel for 20 years. Now, granted, a thousand years may be a day in the sight of the Lord, but 20 years for me and you is an eternity, especially if we're being vehemently tormented. So the people of Israel were convinced there's no end in sight. They're convinced nothing's going to change. This isn't going away. This isn't a temporary thing. It seems to be permanent. We've lived under this for 20 years and there's no end in sight. There's, there's nothing on the horizon. And so they cried out to the Lord. Again, that doesn't necessarily mean they repented. It means they're in great pain and they want relief. They called to the Lord. At least again, they're turning in the right direction. At least they're crying out to the covenant God. At least they're crying out to Yahweh. At least they're not calling to Baal or the Asheroth or some other God in that time. They're calling out to the Lord for relief. Helpless in the face of an invincible force. They despaired of it ever getting any better, so they turned to the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Same song, third verse. This is what makes the story so amazing to me. Again, Israel did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. They again abandoned the God who had done all these great things for them, the God who had loved them and cared for them. They turned their back on Him and they went whoring after other gods and they can't trust those gods to save them because they don't even exist. And so they turn and cry out to the Lord. And again... God responds in grace and raises up yet another Savior. The biblical record affirms man's insatiable appetite for sin and his bent toward rebellion against God. But there's a second thing. The biblical record affirms just as consistently God's determined faithfulness to His covenant promise and the unfathomable means of accomplishing His purpose. Why does God keep bailing them out? I mean, that's a real question. If you take the book seriously, if you read the story and you say, I think this is actual history, I think this is stuff actually happening, I think these people are actually rebelling against God again, then you have to ask yourself... If that's the case, why in the world does he keep bailing them out? I mean, at some point, don't you say, well, now see, you're just being an enabler. Why does God keep bailing them out? Because God is faithful to his promise, whether anybody else is or not. God is faithful to His Word. And God has entered into covenant with these people. And God has assured us of the salvation of His people. He is faithful even if we are not. And this is where the story gets really interesting. They cried out to the Lord after 20 years of oppression. 
And we're told there's a woman named Deborah who's a prophetess who's judging Israel at the time. Huh. And I mean, he seems to go to some pain to do it. Her name is Deborah, female, who is a prophetess, female, who is the wife, female, of a certain man, and she's judging. The people of Israel are going out to her and asking for judgment, and she is handing down judgment. We're not told that God raised up Deborah to be a judge. We're told that she is already judging at the time. She was handing down judgment. We don't know the detailed record of how things worked at the time. We don't have detailed records about the government at the time and how things operated or anything like that. But it seems to be clear that the biblical writer under inspiration of the Spirit wants us to understand that it is a woman who is leading. It is a woman who is judging. It is a woman who is handing down judgment. Apparently, the sin and corruption and the oppression of Sisera has cracked Israelite society and is not functioning as God had intended to function. Because I think a clear reading of Scripture does reveal that God intends for men to take the leadership role, but they're not. And so God is using this woman to judge the people. But she is not the one to save or to deliver Israel. She's judging. But apparently she's not the judge because she summons Barak. She becomes the instrument in the hand of God to raise up the judge who will deliver Israel. And so she summons Barak to come to her. Hazar is north of the Sea of Galilee, so it's northern. Deborah is down at Ephraim. She's down in the south. She summons Barak, who's up in the northern area, to come down to her. And then she says to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go and gather your men at Mount Tabor. And then I will draw out Sisera and his army to meet you at the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. God uses Deborah to raise up a Savior for his people. But apparently this Savior is not all that excited about going. Has not the Lord called you to do this? And she assures him that the Lord's going to call him out and he's going to deliver him into your hand. And so Barak says, great. If you go with me, I'll go. If you don't go with me, I'm not going. Now, I ask you, is that a lack of faith or is it an expression of faith? Is Barak saying, I'm not sure whether I should go or not, so um, give me some kind of sign, go with me to show. Is he saying, I don't really want to, and so you're going to have to convince me that I need to go? Or is it an act of faith? Is he like Moses saying to the Lord back in Exodus, if you go with us, we'll go, but if you don't go with us, we're not going, because we're not going without you. 
Deborah, as the embodiment of the presence of God, is he saying, I want to make sure that you're with me, God, and then I'll go, but if not, which is it? I've read both. I've read scholars that make arguments for both of those. I honestly don't know which it is. But here's what I do know. When you get down to verse 14 and it's time to actually go into battle, he doesn't hesitate. When he's actually on Mount Tabor and he's looking down at Sisera and 900 iron chariots in this vast army and he has these light soldiers on foot that are not near as well trained and not near as well equipped, he doesn't hesitate for a second. He moves. I don't know whether it was faith or lack of faith. What I do know is when the time came, when a push came to shove, he didn't hesitate to do the will of God. And I also know that his name appears again in Hebrews chapter 11 along with those other great men of faith. My point is, it isn't about Barak and the quality of his faith. It's about the God who sovereignly used him to accomplish his purpose. That's the point we're meant to see. Deborah agrees to go with him and tells him this road that we're traveling down, it will be a path to victory, but it won't be a path to glory for you. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And so Deborah and Barak go to Kedesh to his home area in order to gather the forces. Then verse 11, we have this strange interruption. We're told about this man Heber, who is a Kenite, which means he's a distant relative of Moses. And all of a sudden he shows up and we're told that he is living in the area. Who cares? I mean, that's my reaction. I don't know this man. I don't, how, he, this doesn't even make sense. Why this interruption? What we have is this foreigner who's distantly related to Moses and though he's connected in a loose way with Judah and the people of God, apparently he's abandoned them. Apparently he's gone and made some kind of agreement with Jabin. He's some kind of traitor, but really who cares? Well, put your finger there because we're going to come back to him in a minute. Verse 12 through 14 tells the story of the battle. And what happens? It tells us that it is the Lord who routed the army of Sisera. Mount Tabor was a lone mountain. Actually, it's a big hill in the plain. It would have been hard to miss. It would have been a landmark. So to say to gather there and, and to, to, to gather up your troops there, that would have been the landmark that they could have seen and easily known. So Barak and his forces gather at Mount Tabor. Word reaches Sisera about the troop movements. By the way, I think he probably got word from Heber who was in a position from where his camp was. He could have seen all of this and he sends word back to say, by the way, you might want to know there's about 10,000 troops gathering. Word reaches Sisera. He gathers together his men and he is drawn out at the Kishon River. Now, that's interesting because that's exactly what the Lord said He would do back in chapter 4 and verse 7. But here He is in the plain 
with his 900 chariots of iron. That would have made him a superior force in the open plain. It also would have been the time of the year when Gaishan was just a dry stream bed. It only swelled during the rainy season, so it was perfect for that army to, to muster. They would have been an invincible force. And then in verse 14, Deborah gives the command and Barak charges down the side of Mount Tabor toward the Kaishan River with 10,000 on his heels. It must have been a great sight. And we're told it is an utter routing of the enemy. This superior force turns tail and runs. They flee away from, they go back to their home base. And we're told that uh, Barak and his army pursued them all the way back to the home base and they killed every one of those, not a single man survived, except their leader. How did that happen? We're not told in chapter 4, I think we're given a hint in chapter 5, we're told that a storm came up and the Kaishan became a raging torrent. God supernaturally intervened. And if the Kaishan becomes a raging torrent and that area floods, your iron chariots are not going to be too helpful. It's the hand of God delivering His people. But Sisera, the commander, escapes. He jumps out of his chariot. He takes off on foot. He gets away. They destroyed the body, but the head got away. He escaped. Or did he? We're told he leaves on foot and he heads for the camp of Heber. Jabin's ally. Verse 17 makes it clear there was peace between Jabin and the house of Heber. That means there was some kind of agreement between them. There was some kind of alliance. This would be a place of safety. So as he is going, Jael, Heber's wife, greets him warmly. She offers him rest. She provides sustenance. She tucks him into bed. She agrees to stand watch. Then she drives a tent peg through his skull. It's a gruesome scene. And again, it provides us one of the great understatements of Scripture. In verse 21, Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was laying fast asleep and, and from weariness. And here's the understatement. So he died. You think? It wasn't just a splitting headache? He died. Barak arrives in time to find his enemy dead at the feet of this woman. What's the point? The point is, God is faithful to His promise. God will save His people. God will deliver. But His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. How unsearchable are His ways. 
It's not often that you and I can take a pen and draw a straight line connecting all the dots in God's gracious providential working. His ways are not our ways. They're unfathomable. They're unsearchable. But they are not unknowable because God has chosen to make Himself known. God has chosen to reveal Himself to us. And God has said to us, I am a God who saves. I am a God who delivers. I am a God who is faithful to His promise. That brings us to the last thing I want us to note. The biblical record consistently affirms it is God who saves. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. It is the Lord who routed Sisera and his army. It is the Lord who sold Sisera into the hand of a woman. It is the Lord who subdued Jabin. So what I want you to understand is Judges chapter 4 is not the story of Deborah or Barak or Jael or Sisera. It is not the story of Israel and Jabin. Judges chapter 4 is actually the story of Israel and Israel's God. There's more and we're going to look at some of that next time as we get into chapter 5 in the song of Deborah. But chapter 5 ends in verse 31 saying, And the land rested for 40 years. What I want you to understand, what I want you to see, what I want you to walk away with is understanding that this, the book of Judges, is a gospel book filled with the glory and wonder of the gospel. And the gospel is clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're sinners. And we are drawn away and we are enticed by our own evil lusting and desire. This insatiable appetite for sin. And our only hope is that God is faithful to His promise. Our only hope is that He has determined to save a people for His own glory. If God does not save, there is no hope for any of us. And by the way, when I say it is God who saves, I mean it is God who saves and keeps. A salvation that does not keep is no salvation. Our God is a God who saves and keeps forever. And it's holy by His grace. It's wholly due to His mercy and kindness toward us who are undeserving. And so we sing, prone to wonder, 
Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Therein is our only hope. Our God is a saving God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the glory and the wonder of the gospel. I thank you for the glory and the wonder of the story of your great love, your mercies, and your kindness. Demonstrated again and again in the pages of Scripture. Lord, when we look through the book of Judges, as we read through it, we are constantly reminded of how corrupt we are. And how loving and merciful and gracious you are. But that's not locked up in Judges. It runs through the whole of Scripture. And it's not just bound up in Scripture. We see it in our own life. Lord, your grace and your mercy found us dead in trespass and sin. You opened our eyes to the glory and wonder of the gospel, to the beauty of the Lord Jesus, so that we turned, we repented of our sin, and we turned to Christ. We believe and trust in Christ, and then we turn our back. We yield to our own lusting and our own desire. We give ourselves again and again to that which is not God at all. And then we cry out and find grace and mercy. Lord, it is your grace that found us dead in trespass and sin. And delivered us. It is your grace that keeps us as we stumble and fall. And it is your grace that will deliver us home, where we will live forevermore free from the penalty the power, and even the presence of sin. And we're left to bow before you in humble adoration and give you praise and glory and honor because we're saved by grace and grace alone. To your glory and your glory alone. Father, drive this truth deep within our heart that it might inform, shape, and guide our step every day from now until we enter into eternal rest. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. You've been listening to the TBC Tulsa podcast, which features the preaching ministry of Pastor Rod Harris at Trinity Baptist Church, located at the corner of 41st and Union in Tulsa, Oklahoma. To learn more about Trinity Baptist Church, visit us on the web at www.tbctulsa.org.